Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by my friend James Lilacs. We have been doing a series of podcasts about middle-brow themes, or where middle-brow fits in culture. This is the season of festivities that calls to mind family and home, coziness, domesticity, but also the culture we want to pass on and the way we reflect on how we acquired our love of the movies. James, thanks for joining me again. During our last conversation about Christmas movies, you mentioned family traditions, movies you show your daughter, and this is something I'd want to hear more about. What movies do you love that you shared with your daughter, with your family? What movies do you hope that she will love as much as you do to become a family tradition? Those are interesting questions. As far as the family tradition of watching a movie, it's fallen away in the last few years, and I think what killed it was uh, we decided to watch a Hallmark Christmas special about dogs and Christmas or something two or three years ago, and it was so banal and saccharine that we ended up deciding that the the tradition perhaps had, had run its course. So we we don't watch Christmas movies that much anymore uh, together, which is probably just as well because we've seen them all that uh, that need to be seen. Now, granted, Hallwork Channel I think made something like 36 Christmas movies this year, targeted to whatever slices of the demographic they they've decided are unserved. But uh, I, I'd be perfectly happy sitting down and watching A Christmas Carol again or Arthur Christmas or the rest. But you know, there are other movies that you want your child to watch, and so when you put together a list like that, when you, you say which ones would I like her to watch. I guess there are two there are two motivations for that, aren't there? When you when you put together a list of these are my favorite movies, um, you're trying to impress people more or less. You're trying to say what a fascinating, uh, you know, iconoclastic, uh, diverse person you are, because you'll have um, you, you'll have some old Hollywood standard in there. You'll have a big galloping musical, and then you'll have uh, you know Alphaville, uh, just because, just to show you're quirky. And, <laughs> You know, and so it's de- it's designed to let people know that you uh, understand, appreciate, and absorb the breadth and depth of the art form, and you love it all. You love it all. You're that fascinating person, aren't you? Or you can take the approach where you just give them ten Russ Meyer movies, which also tells you something about yourself. I suppose. Oh wow! <laughs> you know, so when you so asking anybody to come up with a list, I think you know name. It it comes down to this. When you say your favorite movies, what you really mean, if you're honest, is if I'm going through Netflix or if if I'm going through the cable channels and I see that this is on, will I stop everything and watch it to its conclusion? The movies that you stop everything and just watch for the 40th time are your favorite movies. The ones that you say are your favorite, but you haven't really watched in several years, many years, because you just remember it well and don't feel particularly compelled to see it again. uh, Those are the ones you admire, but that's different than your favorite movies. But also, when as I said, when you when you put together these lists, you're saying something about yourself. But are you saying something about how you want to be perceived or about how you really are? In other words, if you say if you if you come up with a movie that's, um, uh, you know, all about honor and duty and sacrifice and romance and the rest of it. Is that because you see yourself as that kind of person or because those are qualities you admire but don't necessarily have yourself? So when you say to your daughter, these are the movies that I want you to see to understand your father. It doesn't mean I am these things. It means these are attributes that that I admire and hope that you find admirable as well. So that said, oh gosh, what? Well, if I was to go for one, then that uh, I would want her to see to understand, uh, to perhaps get something about me and understand the art form and some higher values in life. Um, 
Well, Casablanca, obviously, because it's about those things that I said, honor and also the limits of cynicism and the need for a sort of great romantic leap into the dark when the times require it. And also, you could see from that that your father had a great love for the culture of the 1940s and the way that it sanitized and, and, and dressed up and presented in a neat little box these virtues that the culture had decided were necessary at this time. It's just a great period piece. You learn a lot from it. You learn great acting. You discover actors who you will see again and again and again. You will see how, if you want to understand movies, you will see how the Casablanca template was repeated over and over and over again in other movies, from Algiers to, you know, let's trot out Sidney Greenstreet to say, yes, sir, of course, sir. Mm, yes, sir. Mm. To do that, to have uh, Claude Rains, you know, to have Peter Lorne, if you can have Peter Lorne in the same movie as Claude, you know, as, as Sidney Greenstreet. <laughs> yes, sir. I admire a man. Um, then you, you get a sense for the times and the actors and the tropes and the rest of it. So there's so much to be said for a movie like Casablanca, and I would want my daughter to watch it. And then again, you know, I could say Aliens. If you want to understand, understand your father, watch Aliens many, many times because... It says a great deal about a formative time in my life, the 80s. It says a great deal about how America was feeling a certain sort of revised strength that led to the idea of colonial marines out there in a spacecraft acting like guys from Paris Island and how these old military virtues that used to be, you know, nobody thought twice about them. To see this again on the screen after a decade of Vietnam hair pulling was actually <clears throat> quite refreshing. So it's got that. It's got virtues. It's got strength. It has great courage. It has people who redeem themselves. And it also tells you an awful lot about where the culture was in the 80s and what was coming up. I mean, you have this character, Vasquez, this female soldier who now is just absolutely commonplace in every single movie. Nowadays, you see a female soldier, no matter what her physique happens to be look, look like, you assume she can pick up a bazooka and take out a tank without experiencing any recoil whatsoever. We're just tired of this, this constant, strong female, they can kick 300-pound guys into the dirt sort of nonsense. But then that was new. You can also look at what the culture was coming up with, because at the end of the movie, essentially, it's about a single working mother, her child, trying to make her way in a world in which the only surviving man has been blinded and is unconscious and the other one actually has been cut in half and is pretty useless. So at the end of it, you have an interesting look at where the culture is starting to go at the same time that it's bringing back all these old virtues. So, and your dad loves this because it's got lots of high-tech stuff, it's got spaceships, it's terrifying, it's an enormously satisfying and exciting movie. So, uh, so you know, that. So is it is Aliens on par with Casablanca? No, no, it's not. But if you want to understand the times and your dad and what he liked, both of those fill the bill. Yeah, that's um, uh, that makes a lot of sense. There's, I agree that there's a big distinction between the things we admire and the things that spontaneously give us pleasure without mm -hmm. concern for how we will be viewed. And there's there's a lot to be said even for this notion that they come as a surprise to you if you're firing up the Netflix or Amazon Prime or as in the olden days on TV. You, mm -hmm. you run into things that surprise you because of your memories and uh, 
if, at least for a while, you do feel the way you used to, at least most of the time. Of course, there are things you revisit, and it's uh, the surprise is on the revisit, not in the encountering the movie. You don't feel the same thing about everything. But it's a good bet if you feel about the movie more or less the way you used to feel that it's pretty close to your heart, and there's something in there that's probably not just your experience, but also some kind of judgment, as you point out, it's something to do with the times and uh, what the country is going through and things that other people could relate to as well. That's also part of what makes the movies what they are. They can mm-hmm. help you relate to other people and uh, even help generations relate to one another in an incredibly uh, unobtrusive, unpedantic way. It's uh, almost instantaneous when it happens. Yes, but there's also, however, things that you can't communicate to your child. You you, you can't tell them <clears throat> how something may strike you because it, it resonates with something that you felt earlier because they didn't feel that. Now, my there are several television shows that my daughter grew up watching and that she loved, and nowadays, of course, these shows just last forever. I mean, it's just one of hers, I think it's in its 13th, 14th season or something. I mean, the idea when wow. I was growing up that a show would last that long is preposterous. The idea, you know, in the 90s that The Simpsons would be along so long yeah. that the people who grew up with it would end up writing it was absurd. We got three seasons, maybe four or five if you're lucky, and, and that was it. So when I was growing up, my favorite show was, of course, Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And, Star, and Star Trek went away. It went tragically away. And I, all you could do was watch the reruns over and over and over again. And I had to go do my paper route. Uh, so I would only watch the first half of it before I had to grudgingly trudge out and go put the Fargo form on people's doorsteps. <laughs> so so it, it was great when I finally got rid of my paper route and then there wasn't Star Trek on reruns anymore. And I had to wait for the coinciding again of the rerun cycle and my you know free time to come together so I could get <laughs> back to the – and you know I, I, would, I would sit through the, the, the early sh- stagey shows, which looked uh, different than the second season, waiting for my favorite episodes. It was tremendously – and the you know the the third season is it limped to its ending and then it would all start up again so this was critical so it goes away and then for years we hear these stories oh they're going to bring it back as a television show and then of course Star Wars is a big hit so they make the movie now we can argue about Star Wars the motion picture some other time I'm happy to do it now but the second Star Wars the second Star Trek movie brought back everything that you felt as a kid watching the original. There, so the, when you watch it again, even though you know what happens, you're waiting for the moments. You're waiting for Ricardo Montalban with his, with his Corinthian leather chest, you know, raising his <laughs> bloodied fist up and quoting Melville. You're waiting, for, you're waiting for Kirk down in the bowels of the Genesis planet shouting, you're waiting for you're, you're waiting for that moment in the Mutara Nebula where the Enterprise comes up underneath the ship and takes it out as James Horner's score just blasts all over the place. All of these moments took everything you felt as a child and, and turned them up to 11 and it resonated and it was perfect. So I can't tell my, my daughter could watch the movie and say, that's fun. It's kind of hokey in the special effects. They're, you know, they're, they're looking at monitors that have computer graphics from you know the arcade games of 1982 but it's fun but she will never know what it's like to have your your childhood visions reenacted in such scale on the big screen she just can't so 
I yep. imagine that, that that works for me when I look at the products of other cultures, too. I'm missing the backstories, the resonances, the elements that 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 that, ever, that were part of the cultural life, you know, atmosphere that I just can't get. Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that because some stuff is just bonds of affection and very difficult to reproduce. There's only so much you can share. And... Um, so I came up with this questions partly because of our previous discussion, but partly because I'm doing the year in review, mm -hmm. uh, writing at the end of the year. I'm a movie writer. I, I, it gives me a chance to think about things and to see what other critics look at. And I don't have a lot of favorites. I'm. It, it's one year where what's popular just didn't seem to me to be memorable. And I think that at some level all things that uh, achieve some popularity are aiming also to be memorable. I don't think you could have made the Wrath of Khan if you didn't have a certain degree of ambition, right? That you wanted no, this no. to be more than just another episode, if a long episode. That um, So I don't think that the Star Trek, the motion picture, had much ambition, except maybe in a technical sense. But Wrath of Khan was a very ambitious story, and uh, it, it could do things that no episode could do on the TV show, completely aside from budgetary constraints or things like that, simply because it's also impressive as a movie to watch, that it has a certain psychological, dramatic effect on you that is not available to an episode. And I think that this, we, this is what we owe a transmission to, on the part of the audience's uh, bonds of affection and on the part of the people who make it a certain ambition to turn the popular into the memorable. Yeah, I, I, I would argue about the, um, the ambitiousness of the first Star Trek movie, though. I think its flaw was that it was too ambitious in the Roddenberry sense. Um, mm -hmm. the, the basic conceit of it was that, you know, man is going to find the, this, this, this enormous, unfathomably, <clears throat> more coffee, very large, uh, object that was swaddling a tiny little speck that mankind had hurled into the universe a couple of centuries before it is coming back looking for its creator. And, you know, okay, fine. That's, that's the sort of Roddenberry conceit, the grand yeah. idea that, that plagued many a Star Trek show. The worst Star Trek episodes are the ones that actually reached for those those great ideas. I mean, we may remember the one where Apollo shows up and he gets really tall, and that's kind of cool, but the, uh -huh. the underlying idea about that was really, they didn't do anything with it. it was, they just felt it was sufficient sometimes to trot out the big idea and leave it at that. So the first movie suffers, I think, from an excess of philosophical ambition, and as, and as such, has its dramatically inert moments. But yep. you kept you kept you kept using the phrase "the bonds" between a film, and <clears throat> I want to take that literally because one of my first movie-going experiences that I remember is going to see "You Only Live Twice" with my father, huh. and I think my dad took me to that movie. Uh, he wanted to see it, like all men did. But I think he took it me to that. I was probably nine or ten to 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 school me in the ways of the world. I think it was his way of <clears throat> of showing me sort of uh, you know the, the the world of men with their Walther PPKs and their submarines and you know <laughs> and that this you know it, it is time to put Winnie the Pooh behind you and look at this. And so here I am at a very impressionable age seeing this movie and utterly 
completely entranced by every aspect of it. Horrified, terrified, scared in parts. <clears throat> but at the end, I swear that my my sort of conception of the way the world out there was, was based on the Ken Adams set of the rocket base in the volcano. The Swedish modern furniture, you know, the the, the very European Scandinavian style of the, of the technical, of the, of the offices, everything about it galvanized for me sort of what the world was like and, and made a lasting impression right there. So that you know, I never really quite stopped loving Bond movies because of that one. Now, and that Bond exists all the way to the present moment, even though the present moment Bond movies have nothing in common with the one that I fell in love with. Mm-hmm. But there's there's a word, a concept, and an unwillingness maybe on the part of the of the viewer to give to sunder that bond. I mean, maybe there's a question for you. We have we invest so much in characters, directorial styles, periods. It really takes a lot to take a bolt cutter and 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 make us not interested in that genre, that director, that something like that, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Or are you are you the kind of guy who can just turn on them in a second and say I'm done with you? No, I'm I'm the kind of guy who tends to explore and like a director or work more and more as thing as as I learn. Partly because it, at at some point you realize what a certain character is or what a certain director does, and you want to see in what directions he can take it, and you're more loving about the the things he can come up with. It's uh at I think that when you grasp something well, you're not looking for novelty and all and, and the kind of excitement that comes with novelty anymore. That um, this goes back to what it means to, mo- to talk about movies you really love. If you do keep watching something, that's a sign. <laughs> the yes. uh, we you know we often have this problem, a love of novelty and a certain ennui. That there's movies we love, but we won't watch it again because it's like a joke. I've already heard it. It was a mm-hmm. great joke. I remember how I felt when I laughed, but it's over. But uh, I, I write about movies because I love watching a movie the tenth time I, I, I watch it just as well as the first if it's a movie I like. And um, so, for example, I, my moment of thinking about the world of men was I was a grad student and I had a, a nephew who was just coming into his tween years. And I also thought, well, there are certain things he should know about life that aren't, uh, you know, in, in animations. This was mm-hmm. the not, so animations were a big thing for kids. And so I started showing him action comedies. And uh, this forced me to think about how much I really think of John McTiernan, the great Die yes. Hard, October Red, Predator, mm-hmm. what have you, director, and Shane Black, the guy who wrote The uh, Last Boy Scout and The Lethal Weapon. And, the last, and the, the, the last action hero, right? Exactly. And that's where I'm going. The That's the movie my nephew and I have been watching maybe seven years now, every year, sometimes maybe more than once a year, but we do watch it reliably once a year and I've gradually moved this into the Christmas season it's not because it's a Christmas movie <laughs> but um, but it's uh, it's because it's uh, I've started thinking about it as a Christmas movie because it's become obvious over time to me how much it is a fairy tale and about uh-huh. how we children need fairy tales and because of 
how we deal with our screens and our culture, they find it harder and harder to get what they need to get out of fairy tales. In That's, Last Action yeah. Hero, you have this kid, Danny, who lives a pretty sad life, and he's got a lot of anger and desire to punish uh, people because of that and then that's part of what we get out of stories the good guys win the bad guys lose and there's vengeance and uh, and and that's one part of it but the other thing is not this kind of desperate moralism which is endearing in a boy it's he's a know-it-all the first time he sees an explosion scene he no longer has this spirit that you mention in being entranced by a bond movie and that vision of technology it's, uh, you know, he's blasé. He says, oh yeah, mm -hmm. he's going to get away with a minor scratch. The cops, bam, <laughs> dead. Right. And, uh, and that's because our kids uh, see these things from an early age and they recognize patterns and they become bored with them. And so you see this kid is trapped at the movies because he always needs to learn something out of stories because he hopes that they're fairer, more acceptable than life. But on the other hand, he can never take them seriously because he's such a know-it-all. And mm -hmm. I would say that that was prophetic about the coming world of franchises and superheroes, of course. Everybody is trapped in that who goes into these things again and again and again and again. And this goes from personal things like wanting heroes in some way to solve your own identity problems to societal reasons. I don't think it's all right that uh, uh, New, the New York or a stand-in for New York has to be brought down like on 9-11 about two times a year for the last eight years. Something's wrong there. <laughs> I, 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 absolutely. I was glad in a Thor movie, not the last one, but I think the previous one, where they just trashed a college. I, I mean, <laughs> thank you for not leveling 16 skyscrapers. I worry about the insurance industry in these worlds. How does, <laughs> does anybody get insurance for a building? When they, you know, there would right be your it. superhero story. <laughs> Somebody who can manage that. <laughs> And this keeps me sometimes from enjoying things. Um, I, I remember having an argument with somebody about the Matrix where I was talking about you know, the Zion, that thing underground. Who the hell built it? What is the point of this? It, I can't suspend disbelief to think that this thing exists. And they were saying, you have to, you have to. doesn't mean you can't think about these things. Well, I do. And the great thing about the, great, uh, the last action hero, and you, you're, you're right, it's the, the old fables, the old fairy tales relied on a certain amount of magic, and you had to accept that. But in this one, people, it's it, it's about the jaded acceptance and factoring in and blasé attitude towards an, an, the visual magic that everybody had been watching for years. And that movie is like the last attempt to, to wave the hand and say, after, you know, après moi, le déluge, literally, especially if Emmer Mick is, is directing it. And it could only have Schwarzenegger as, 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 the, as the linchpin, as the hinge between the season of, of the, the serious, we, we mean business predator style action movie and the ones that came later, which had a weightlessness and an unreality to them because they became more and more you know, generated by computers. So yeah, that's 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 it. But yep. you know, when you mention when you mention Arnie again, I mean, for my generation, we watched Arnold Schwarzenegger begin as this you know Austrian joke with the wooden accent and the even more lumbery styles of acting, to become this icon, this 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 this, this incredible cultural force, with it you know with a three word catchphrase, uh, <laughs> to then to go into what happened to him later and you know the governor things and. Nowadays, however, though, you know, if I see a description of a movie 
Arnold Schwarzenegger is an aging sheriff in a town in the Desperados are coming in. I'm going to watch that movie. <laughs> because it's be, I'm going to watch him in about absolutely anything because it's a callback to those glory days. And what's more, he's old too. And there's something about, you know, guys my age, watching guys my age do things with the recognition that time has passed and they're not at the top of their game anymore. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And that wasn't even a half-bad movie. It wasn't special, but it was an all-right story. And I think you're right about this, that a lot of it depends on this awareness of our mortality, that you take it in a certain implicit way more serious morally because you you, you see more of the suffering, more of the weather-beaten look, the worn-out mm-hmm. stuff. That It's more human. Well, I mean, I, it, the um, it, they are. Uh, Sylvester Stallone went back and remade Rocky and remade First Blood, and they were pretty good movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, as they, they were pretty good movies, and for those of us who you know who suffered through, we didn't watch them, but we saw the ads for you know Stop or I'll Throw Mama Off the Train or whatever, <laughs> or, yeah. or Fist or Over the Top, you know, the Rocky movie of professional hand wrestling, arm wrestling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to 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 have him enter the sort of uh, big gut, strange new respect um, period of his career was was enjoyable to see. So, uh, if if you see a synopsis, Bruce Willis is an is an aging you know cop who who faces something or other, and it's not a diehard move. You'll watch that too. Yep. Alan Alda in any of these roles, however, would not work. Any of the sort of sensitive intellectual guys who cluttered up the movies in the seventies and eighties would not work. It's these get up and punch them again guys who, who still who still have a certain power uh, and make you want to see what they're up to now yeah and i think partly this has to do with the requirements that americans put on the movies it's um you know there is this second life as it were is the the important and the defining thing that at some level people were not serious when the, there was a lot of bulging muscle it was fun, right. but so it was. Whereas trying to see whether these people who skyrocketed into fame, celebrity, all those successes and excesses, and then turning into losers, failures, or self-destructive machines, seeing whether they can live with that, whether mm-hmm. anything comes out of that rise and fall that's human and uh, at some level likable or respectable even, th- that is very important. You see, you know, everybody has dreams, but could you survive their fulfillment? Right. I mean, what did the tough guys of the old era do? Did they ever have? I mean, Cagney had a little had some stuff, but George George Raft, I don't recall coming Mm-mm. back with a series of wise, you know, uh, <laughs> movies steeped no. in steeped in the real in the in the in the knowledge that he assembled over the years. But let, Ed let's Robinson just... had the good old age. Oh yeah, yep, yep, yep. Yes, he did. And he, I mean, Eddie G in a series of movies. Uh, he did that one with Fritz Lang, Woman in the Window, I think. Mm-hmm. Or is that, or is that the? There are two movies that are virtually identical, but it's just an old sort of intellectual type timorous man getting attempted by a femme fatale. Fritz Lang did one of them, um, and they're very, they're the opposite of Little Caesar. I mean, he. Mm-hmm. You know, then, and then Key Largo to bring it back. But let's not just talk about the, the muscly bound guys punching each other. Let's talk about, for example, one of my favorite directors when I was growing up was Woody Allen. 
mm-hmm. who, I, who I thought had accomplished an extraordinary career transition from these earlier funny movies, which we thought were laugh riots, to Love and Death, which made us feel very smart because, look, oh, he's referencing Russian literature. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at the end of that. He's dancing off with death like Bergman. Oh, my God. We're so smart. Then to the emotional movie, I mean, Annie Hall, you know, which I give a lot of credit to his uh, cinematographer and his co-writer, is just a brilliant, little, warm, wonderful movie. It's perfect. Followed by Manhattan, whose gorgeousity made us sort of forget and, and intentionally, perhaps, ignore the underlying moral depravity of it. But after that, it's all over the road. And we it's it's hard now for us to look at some of his movies and not know what we know about him when we see the films, right? Yeah. So this is something else I'm writing about now. The I think there was one really standout comic in the 2000s, and that was Louis C.K. They think this yeah. was important about America, that you had this really talented guy, but the most talented guy could no longer be popular because the, the culture had changed. You know, mm-hmm. the big comedies, uh, Eddie Murphy in the 80s, uh, Jim Carrey in the 90s, these were both worldwide and all-American, and they could be popular and very, very talented. I don't know that that's possible anymore, and I think maybe maybe it's time to look at that and see what can be fixed or salvaged or what have you. But this guy, uh, Louis C.K., thrived on showing progressives that first he was one of them, and second of all, that unlike them, he was willing to see how much of the progressive life sucks how complicated you want nuance you want to see moral discomfort well here it is yes his latest movie has just been shelved made invisible because of uh, accusations of sexual misconduct which in his case don't uh, make me go crazy because there's no violence or in fact maybe even contact involved it's he he seems the guy was creepy but not uh, dangerous and uh, nevertheless, his mo- movie that was shelved is about Woody Allen, about whom much more horrifying accusations yeah. have been made. And nevertheless, Woody Allen is still, if not a star, then happily in business, gets Oscars nominations, another contract for the movie every year. But this guy, whose movie was really about Woody Allen and how wrong it is in a culture that we can't fix this problem because we're too tied up commercially and as audiences to celebrities, that guy got punished and so did his movie. Now that is unfortunate and ironic in the worst way. It certainly is. It certainly is. And I mean, Louis, he, it, it seems now in retrospect, try, tried to buy off um, further credit, additional criticism by being unsparingly critical of himself. Like, you can't say anything about me that I haven't said about myself. Well, it turns out we kind of could. Yep. Um, and, and I understand that. But from what I've read about the movie and the reviews of it is that if, if you if you give it a superficial look, it's cringy and out of place. But if you if you look at what he's trying to say, it's more of an indictment like people like him. Um, now, and again, you can say, well, um, great, but he shouldn't have done what he did and he shouldn't have been up. He should have, you know. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I, self-awareness I, 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 is no excuse or, uh, you know, it's not, uh, it doesn't buy you off. Knowledge of the crime does not abolish it by any stretch of the imagination. No, but, but, but at what point is, is Louis C.K. obligated to call a press conference and say, by the way, here's what I did in front of a bunch of women. Uh, nobody's been talking about it, but in case anybody brings it up, let me get out in front of that story in advance. I mean, there's just never a good moment to confess your past as a sad wanker, you know, in front of <laughs> Literally. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but, that's but a, right. you know. I mean, we watch Woody Allen, but I don't watch Woody Allen for the for Woody for the Woody part because the Woody Allen part of a movie is only the worst part of it. He can't write dialogue after all these years. It's still just like watching somebody listening to somebody hammer tin. I mean, Hannah, Hannah and her sisters regarded it as this great movie. Michael Caine at one point in Hannah and her sisters <laughs> after talking to Barbara Hershey, he puts his hand to his chest and says, she said, yes, I'm walking on air. Oh. Nobody says I'm walking on air. <laughs> let alone a lot. Nobody thinks it. Okay, we, we you know we like the movie because it's it's got you know uh, it's it, wonderful actresses and the music is great and the set design. Mm-hmm. I will go see eventually, or I'll rent uh, the the new movie he's got out now because Kate Winslet is supposedly really good and the cinematographer that he's working with is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. In Cafe Society, which was a, a needless movie. I mean, far be it for me to say that we don't need this but there was no reason for that movie to exist it just yeah. it just wasn't it didn't go anywhere it didn't say anything um and it just had this young man jesse uh, eisenberg playing essentially the same old stammering freud quoting unattractive jewish male from new york who nevertheless just gathers up the shikses one by one uh, yeah okay <laughs> well, yep you know which is re- repeated oh it's like who's woody in this movie but the thing of it was, was that the cinematographer made everything in California look like a Maxfield Parish painting. I mean, it was just saturated and wonderful and glowing. So he has an eye and he has an ear mm-hmm. um, for the music, for the music yep. and the styles and the look of things. I mean, one of my favorite movies ever is will always be on my. I'll leave you with this because I have to go on my top ten list. Will be Radio Days because uh-huh. I would give that to my daughter to say. Everything about this in the New York of the 1940s, I love from its tattiest, most cluttered room in, in Brooklyn to the gorgia, to the, to the beauty of Radio City. This is a world where I wish that I had known and the music and the language and the culture of radio. It's a it's a wonderful, wonderful movie. And I just wish that they'd done it about actual radio shows instead of the ones that you that, that you see him parodying or trying to copy without saying exactly what they were. Mm-hmm. That's a very good note to end on. It is a wonderful and more than a little nostalgia-inducing and leaves you with this desire for something you can't... You know you can't grasp it. You know you can't have that, but how could you not love it? There's a with James... Mia, with, with, with Mia Farrow singing a laxative commercial, how can you go wrong? <laughs> Stay regular with relax. Start every day the relax way. Soon you'll be feeling so great you'll want to relax on top of the Empire State. I just still to this day. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's when I had suppressed truth to tell. <laughs> uh, All right, it's been a pleasure as ever. We'll talk to you next week. Next week, James. Bye bye.